Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, Chris Dillow, Investors Chronicle's economist, and personal finance writer Emma Adjiman, who has joined the team this week. Welcome on board, Emma. After two years in the doldrums, gold has been rocketing as investors pile into what they see as a safe haven. But gold is not necessarily the shining beacon of safety you thought it was, as Kate has been finding out. Kate, first of all, why can gold be useful in times of market turmoil? Well, people tend to turn to gold because it performs very differently to other asset classes, and it's seen as a, a very uncorrelated source of returns. So, you know, if everything else is tanking, and with QE having kind of pushed the returns of bonds and equities to more similar levels, um, the idea is that you might want gold as a kind of insurance asset um, to protect or to, to kind of put your money in the hope that it will kind of hold up when everything else is going badly or just do something different to the rest of your portfolio. Okay, um, that's um, good. So why in your article in this week's issue do you also say that gold is not a haven or even necessarily a store of value? Well, I think the the issue is that it's often referred to as a as a safe haven, but that gives this impression that, well, safe gives the impression that if you put your money in gold, you know, it it will never go down. But in fact, gold's an incredibly volatile asset. So I think there's a big difference between a defensive, uncorrelated asset and this concept of a safe haven, which which offers protection in all environments. So I think I've I've just kind of drawn attention to the fact that actually. Uh, while gold is surging at the moment, as other things fall, in previous years we've had massive, massive falls from gold. So it's it's a very volatile place to put your money. It also doesn't pay out any interest. Um, and you often hear people say that, that gold has no intrinsic value um, and all its value is kind of extrinsic and, and, and how it's perceived. So while I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing to invest in, there are definitely good reasons I just think, you know, some of this language around safe haven um, and store of value are maybe things that need to be questioned or you need to be a bit careful of. Okay, so um, bearing all that in mind, um, how could you use gold in your portfolio? Well, I think the the way to use it is as a diversifier um, and to have quite a small weighting towards it. And the way that I've looked at holding it is through um, an exchange-traded commodity so this is it's an ETC and physically backed rather than synthetic. Um, so this is obviously that ETC actually does hold the gold or is backed by gold bullion held in a bank as opposed to tracking. An ETC being a, an exchange traded commodity. That's right. A sort yeah. of ETF. Yeah. Like, like, an, like an ETF, mm. but uh, with commodities rather than, <laughs> rather than being okay. a fund. So you're saying um, investors should go for this option and, and you favour a physical one mm. um what do investors need to consider when 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 choosing one of these funds well i think for a start make sure it is a physical one that you're looking at because the the names of them alone it, it's not that easy to tell necessarily which are the physical and which are the synthetic uh, so make sure it is backed by gold bullion and you're not actually tracking the future price of gold, which is very volatile. That's what a synthetic ETF does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So then you would be tracking, you know, gold derivatives contracts. And that is kind of a more volatile and, and more risky way of playing it, maybe, and doesn't give you exposure to the spot price of gold. Um, I would also say look for the large, larger ETFs, um, which will be more liquid. And then there will be a 
less of a gap between the buy and sell price or the spread as we call it. So um, I think those are, those are the key things to bear in mind and obviously have a look at the ongoing charge. Okay, um, that's some, some some useful points. Now, now, Chris, um, you've obviously um, written quite a lot about um, gold as well over the years. Um, just first of all, Kate mentioned it had been surging. Why has the gold price been surging? Is it just because of investors piling in, or are, are there any other things going on? Well, I think the key here is what Kate said about gold not paying any interest. Now, normally that's a disadvantage. But right now, it is one thing that gold has got going for it, because a zero interest rate is considerably better than a negative interest rate, which is what you're getting on a lot of European and Japanese bonds at the moment. And also, it could be what you get on actual deposit rates in the euro area and Japan in the near future. If banks pass on negative deposit rates at the central bank, to their customers, as, as some people fear. And I, I suspect the one reason why people are going into gold is because they fear prolonged negative rates on, on bonds and cash in, in large parts of the world. And if you look historically, um, gold has been negatively correlated with interest rates. And when interest rates were high in the 80s and 90s, and the gold price was low, and as interest rates came down in the 90s and 2000s, the gold price took off. And what we're seeing now is a new leg of that falling interest rates, rising gold story. Okay. Um, Do you think it's a good portfolio holding to have during market turbulence or even at any other times? Yes. Um, Historically, um, Kate's right, gold has been a diversifier in the sense that it has a roughly zero correlation with the all-share index, so it's as likely to rise as fall um, when, when shares do badly. However, right now it could be that gold is especially attractive because the circumstances in which equities do badly are likely to be ones in which um, central banks cut interest rates even more negative, in which bond yields in the euro area become even more negative. And in, in that circumstance, gold would, would, would continue to rise. So it could be from the point of view of protecting yourself from recessions and, and the fear of prolonged stagnation, that gold is, is well worth having. The, the counterpart to that is, of course, that if those fears recede, then gold will fall. But if those fears do recede, then equities could well take off. So what you lose on gold, you you would gain on equities. And in that sense, I think gold has part of a diversified portfolio. Okay, that's um, really interesting. Um, Do you have any particular favoured ways for um, getting exposure to gold? Um, no, I, I agree with, 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 with Kate here. One thing I would caution against, though, is holding gold mining shares. Now, the problem with those is that shares behave like shares. And simply by, uh, and simply by virtue of that rather trivial fact, there tends to be a correlation between gold mining shares and the general stock market. And that undermines the main reason for holding gold, which is that it has that diversification benefit. 
Okay, so uh, yeah, best option then, a gold exchange-traded commodity. And you can see some suggestions on um, funds in our IC Top 50 ETFs list. Um, Now, turning to this week's portfolio clinic, um, this features a 70-year-old reader who, among other things, has been investing in shares listed on the alternative investment market, or AIM for short. Um, The reader's doing this because he thinks AIM shares are a good way to mitigate inheritance tax. But Chris, both you and the two other experts who reviewed the portfolio were generally against him investing in AIM for reasons including the fact that not all AIM shares mitigate inheritance tax and the ones that do have to be held for at least two years. Chris, what are your main concerns of AIM shares? Well, my main concern is shown up by the historic fact Um, Since the inception of AIM in the mid-90s, it's fallen by more than 20%, whilst the all-share index has risen by 75%. That draws our attention to the fact that AIM shares historically have been a really bad deal. And I think there are profound psychological reasons for that. One is that people tend to overpay for lottery-type stocks, you know, on an AIM share, you do have the small chance of a very large return. And investors pay too much for that, with the result that, on average, AIM shares are overpriced. And also, people have a tendency to be overconfident about their ability to, to forecast future corporate growth. They underestimate the extent to which it's random, and that leads them to pay too much for speculative sh- shares. And to put this another way... One thing we know historically is that defensive shares have tended to outperform over the long run. Now, the counterpart to that is that something must underperform, and that something is shares that are not defensive, uh, and those are are AIM shares in particular. Um, Yeah, historically not good, and also a high-risk area, but um, are there any situations where you would consider it okay or a good idea to purchase AIM shares? The, The circumstances in which AIM shares do well are pretty rare but what they are is if you get speculative sentiment consistently improve Um, this is the sort of thing that's likely if you get optimism about new technologies and and therefore some sort of speculative bubble in those those speculative stocks that, that are exposed to what investors perceive to be future new technologies and aim did phenomenally well during the tech bubble for example and and if we get a repeat of of that then aim would be the place to be now is there any particular kind of investor that aim shares might be suitable for to be honest i doubt it given their long-run poor performance and if you fancy having a dabble then fair enough, but be aware that it's a gamble, and gambles are normally negative sum games. Okay, so I think on on that note, then if if you're able to take a gamble, it would be fair to say that you shouldn't invest in AIM unless you have a very long term time horizon, a high risk appetite, and let's say a large portfolio of which only a small small portion um, gets put into the AIM shares. Is is that fair, Chris? I'm not sure that time horizon has anything to do with it because over the long run, we know that AIM has underperformed and it, it might well continue to do so. Um, I've never been sure why time horizon matters. Well, to give, give the shares time to recover. Um, you know. there's, 
there's yeah. no guarantee that mm. a share will recover simply because it's fallen. And in fact, quite the opposite. So, you know, however far a share has fallen, it can always fall another 100%. Now, Chris, another thing you didn't like um, was the fact that the reader featured in the reader portfolio clinic um, wants to get exposure to India to achieve growth. Um, why didn't you think this was a good idea? Aren't emerging markets one of the places you're supposed to invest to get growth? No, emphatically not. Um, th- th- this rather irritates me because one thing we know for sure, historically speaking, is that there is no correlation at all between a country's economic growth rate and its stock market returns. So economic growth simply does not translate into share price growth. Um, now, there, there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, one is that economic growth is partly discounted in advance, so it's only unexpected growth that benefits shares. And another reason is that economic growth doesn't necessarily translate into dividend growth for existing firms. It can accrue to foreign-owned firms that operate in the country. It can go to unquoted firms, to firms that have yet to set up. It can even go to workers. So there's lots of ways for growth to leach out into places that where investors don't get it. So should investors totally avoid emerging markets, or what would be the reasons for having emerging markets funds in your portfolio at the moment? Well, they certainly shouldn't avoid emerging markets. They should simply forget that silly idea that growth equals stock market returns. The case for investing in emerging markets, I think, is twofold. Firstly, um, they they might be quite cheap right now, given their, their fall in recent years. And because emerging markets are risky in the sense that they carry crash risk, the risk of doing especially badly in bad times, investors should be compensated for taking on that extra risk. And historically, that's been the case, and there's no reason to suppose that it won't be the case going forward. But there's also a second argument for investing in emerging markets, and that is, ironically, what we were talking about in the the context of gold. Um, There is a, a risk. Um, an unquantifiable risk that Western economies will suffer secular stagnation, years and years and years of very low growth. Now, for younger investors, this is a really horrible prospect because it means low returns on your equities plus um, low wage increases and bad job prospects. And it could well be that investing overseas and in emerging markets is a way to partly protect yourself against that risk of secular stagnation. Okay, that's uh, some, some, some really interesting suggestions there. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, now, we also have articles on the website um, explaining why not all AIM shares qualify for inheritance tax relief and some suggestions on how to access the ones which do. Now, many investors hold investments listed on stock markets, such as shares and investment trusts, and are very on the ball when it comes to monitoring the returns they deliver. But what they aren't aware of is how they hold their shares and investment trusts, and the fact that there are actually a number of different ways in which you can hold shares. Now, Emma, you've been looking at this. So first of all, what are the main ways in which you can hold shares? Well, there are three main ways that you can hold shares. The first is certificated or what's sort of commonly known as paper shares. And that's the traditional way of buying shares. You buy a share and are sent the share certificate. And when you want to sell the share, you have to send the share certificate back to your broker. 
um, post it back. The good thing about certificated shares is that your name is on the share register and you receive all the shareholder rights, such as the ability to attend and vote to AGMs and EGMs directly. Um, the next sort of way in which you can hold shares is personal crest membership. And that, they're a bit different from certificated um, sh- paper shares because it's an electronic share um, holding mechanism. So your shares are bought through the, the your broker and it's recorded on the Crest Settlement electronic system. And um, you are able to sort of record the shares personally as being hold, holding on to you. They're held directly in your um, personal Crest membership account. And that means that you are actually on the company share register. And again, you will see you will receive all the shareholder rights directly. Um, the other sort of main way of holding shares is nominee accounts. And these are um, the most common form in the industry. And the difference between a nominee account and certificated or personal crest membership is that the broker is the one who legally owns the shares, but you as the underlying investor are recorded as the beneficial owner. And that means you receive all the dividends um, attached to the shares, um, but the broker is the person who passes these on to you. And there are actually two different types of nominee systems, nominee accounts. You've got pooled nominee accounts, which is the most common form of um, of a nominee accounts, and that basically means that the broker um, puts all the different clients, all the shares of their different clients, into one account and um, trades the shares in and out of that account. So it makes it easier and cheaper for brokers to trade their clients' um, shares. And the other way is designated nominee accounts. Um, designated nominee accounts is the same sort of um, structure. You, the broker remains the legal owner of the shares um, and you're the beneficial holder. But rather than being pooled with various different clients, you have an individual account. Okay, now that, that's um, that's interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of people don't know that. Um, it's also quite complicated. Um, j- just briefly, how do you choose which is the right model for you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the thing is that for, it depends on what's most important to you. So for some people, it's going to be cost. And if it is cost, then nominee accounts are the cheapest around generally. Although there are some providers of personal crest membership um, which won't charge you for you know for having that service, but it it tends to be the case that because nominee accounts make it easier for brokers to to trade, um, and you're on your behalf, they are cheaper. Um, so if it's cost, nominee accounts are probably the thing that that you would you would want to look at. But for some people, they're more concerned about shareholder rights and their ability to vote and attend AGMs and EGMs to receive company reports and accounts. And if that's the case, you would probably be more interested in holding a certificated or um, personal crest um, membership scheme because that allows you to receive the rights directly as a, as a shareholder and you can be in charge of all of that. Um, and then other people might be more concerned about um, keeping abreast of what actual um, shares they own and um and making sure that they are on top of of knowing at all times exactly what shares they own because the nominee account system means that brokers are the ones who have the record of exactly what shares you own um so if you're more concerned about knowing exactly what you own probably the certificated share 
um, system is it will work for you or the personal crest membership will work okay um so that that's good to know um is it very easy to get exactly what you want um it's actually not as easy as you might think um and this is the department of business and innovation skills released a report a couple of months ago looking at the different ways in which shareholder um shareholders think about the options and why they choose them and actually what they found is that investors are not that um aware of a different types of of um different types of options out there and that's a problem in terms of um, people knowing what choices they have and so um, one of the things that the report said was that investors don't know this information and because the pool nominee account system is what's become most dominant brokers brokers, um, actually don't sort of have the incentive to explain to investors what other options there are out there. So that's one of the problems, you know, a lack of investor awareness. And then the other problem is that there have been sort of low numbers of providers um, of some types of of these options. So as I've said, pooled nominee accounts, there's lots of providers of those around, you know, most of the brokers um, that our readers will be familiar with will offer a pooled nominee account. Um, but there's fewer providers of certificated or paper shares account because there's less people sort of trading that. So there's fewer providers around. And personal crest membership in particular, is there's not many providers of, around of that anymore at all. I think it's fallen to about half a dozen or so providers of personal crest membership. And um, designated nominee accounts are also very rare. Lots of um, brokers that report found don't actually advertise that they offer this service. And so um, you'll either need to ask directly your broker if they can sort of facilitate a designated nominee account for you. Okay, well, restricted choice there, but important investors um, know their options. Um, Chris, um, do do you have any feelings on this? Um, Do you hold your investments a particular way? Well, listening to all that reminded me just what a palaver it is to, to own shares directly which is something I don't do. I simply invest in tracker funds, um, most of which are held through tax shelters such as ISAs or pensions, um, simply because um, I, I think that all the evidence is that um, it's very difficult to outperform the market unless you invest in momentum or defensive stocks. Uh, and, and passive investing for me is the easiest thing to do it's as simple as that thanks for uh that and and thank you emma now you can see emma's full article in the magazine on the website and she's got some um really comprehensive tips on how to choose the right way to hold your shares that brings us to the end of this week's podcast so it just remains to thank chris dillo investors chronicles economist kate bealey deputy personal finance editor at investors chronicle and personal finance writer emma agimang you can read more on investing in gold, the risks of AIM shares and the best way to hold your shares in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.